The average uh, attention span of an American is 8.25 seconds. That has decreased since 2000, where it was 12 and a half seconds. Knowing that our attention spans are so short, I thought it wise to go into a sermon series that would last a year. Um, why? Why would I do that? Uh, man, I, I tell you what, our world that we live in, the digital world that we live in, has changed uh, our, our minds. It's changed our brains. If, if you go back even to the 2000s, our attention spans were really short. Our attention spans became much shorter with television and commercials. And so, so much of our life, if you're an 80s child or a, uh, a 90s child, came in these eight-minute blocks that would happen between commercials. But now, if you're a child in today's age, uh, man, it's limited to, I don't know, 140 characters in a TikTok video. I mean, it's changed how we, perceive, how we uh, bring in things. And so, our, our brains, as they function, we just have the scroll, right? We watch it, no interest. Watch it, no interest. Watch it, no interest. And so it's kind of changed how we do things. So in, in preaching, as we open up God's Word, here's what church growth teaches you. That your sermon, sermons better be short, like under 30 minutes, somewhere between 23 and 28 minutes. If a 28-minute sermon happened at this, this church, you know what you'd call it? A miracle. Uh, you know, that's, prob that's, that's probably not happened. Um, sometimes it feels like a hostage situation. And uh, that's, you know, I'm sorry about that. But, man, we're, we're diving in God's Word. Um, I also would tell you that, man, if you want to preach sermon series, they need to be like four weeks, six weeks long at the max because you just can't hold people's attention. And so what you need to do is have, have these shorter sermon series so that you, you know, man, maybe we've got to dress it up, call it at the movies, talk about a movie in the Bible and relate the two or whatever it may take to hold people's attention. But man, I, I just have a feeling that the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews, neither one would like those two things. They wouldn't like that truth and I think they would give us a pretty strong rebuke. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, the Apostle Paul does it. Hebrews chapter 5, the author of Hebrews, does it. And they say, look, we're stuck on, in, in Hebrews, he says, we're stuck on these elementary doctrines of the faith. And by this time, you ought to be eating meat. But rather, you're stuck on milk. Man, I look at Thanksgiving, the, the food that I eat as an adult like, I eat everything that's put on the table as an adult. Praise God, yes, Lord, and amen. But I look at my kids, you know, and it's like stuffing and turkey. And I'm like, dude, you're missing out. You're missing out on the, the good stuff. And that's how we are as, as Christians. We want the milk. We want the shallow things. And we don't want to do the work of chewing the meat. Our jaws get tired. And here's the challenge that I want to put forth to our church. Now, I would tell you that we're, a, we're a, almost a four-year-old church plant. We, we are um, a toddler in the, the faith. You know, we, we like think that we're bigger than we are sometimes, right? We, we can run, we can talk, we can climb the, the stairs, we can go down the slide at the playground, right? But sometimes we still mess ourselves, right? We sometimes get caught up high and we get scared. That's like where we are as a church. And so... 
my heart to shepherd us has always been that we would not just be stuck on the elementary things of the faith, that we would grab the deeper things of the faith, that we would be disciplined. So as your pastor feeling like, okay, I think we're at a place where we can really dive into a book and spend some time there. And so I'm asking you to go with me. If, if it gets boring, it's not because the Bible is boring. It's not because the book of Luke is boring. It's that because I'm not doing, or one of the other pastors who is preaching is not doing a good job presenting uh, the truth of Scripture under the authority of Scripture, uh, the way in which it has been written. And so let's, let's go together. Let's move on from meat. Let's be disciplined with our attention span. And so just a few things that I would invite you to do over the book of, of Luke. And, and one, that is just um, bring your Bible to church and turn to wherever we are in the book of Luke and take out your pen and mark in your Bible if you're a Bible marker. Make notes, do whatever. If not, bring your notebook. Take, take notes if you're a, a, a note taker. Taking notes helps you keep your attention. Two, really learn the book. It is, this is a beautiful book. I'm going to talk about some of the, the things about this book in a second. But it's a beautiful book. Really learn it. Know what's going on. This is what one of the four Gospels. Uh, this, this is um, one of the, the, the meteor of the Gospels. Learn it. Know it. Dive into it. Read it on your own. Know where we're going. It's always going to be easy to come to church and know what's going to be preached the next week because you, it'll be the next passage, right? And so you can read and work in, in that. And then three, just submit yourself to the Lord's teaching. Like may our lives be changed by the preaching of God's word in this coming year. All right. Luke uh, was a physician. We know this from scripture. He's a very smart man. We know he's a historian. Interesting to note, he is a Gentile. And not an apostle, right? He's not Jewish, and we know he's not an apostle. So it's the only book written by a Gentile. Um, and this is one of two Gospels that are written by a non-apostle. And so meaning he was not a disciple, a direct disciple of Jesus. He did not walk with, with Jesus. Um, uh, he would have been converted from Jesus' ministry or after Jesus' ministry. Uh, he was a co-laborer with Paul. And so what we see in the book of Acts, he also wrote Acts. Um, we see in his teaching that uh, he was a companion of Paul, that he traveled with Paul. But he was not a, a convert uh, of Paul. Um, he would have, have been somebody who Paul counted as faithful, we see in multiple places of Scripture. In the Acts, as you're reading the book of Acts, as you think about its authorship, often... Uh, there's these we statements in the book of Acts where he says, and you know, we did this, or we went there. He's talking about himself, right? And he's talking about his time with Paul in his travels, okay? So, starting in verse 1 and through verse 4, I'm just going to kind of intro to you the book, and that's the bonus content. It's not even part of the sermon, all right? So there's no, this is bonus content that you're getting. Uh, starting with, uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 1 Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the first thing I want to point out is that this is written to Theophilus. Okay, uh, Theophilus was also a companion of 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 Luke's. Now, there's two different opinions here. Some people think this was an actual, real person, and he calls him excellent Theophilus. It's somebody that he he is loves and cares for, and he's writing to them. Other people think that it's code, uh, that it's some sort of code word. Just as say the book of James starts, and he says to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. And he really meant to the persecuted Jewish believers who are, who are scattered abroad, right? It's the same sort of code. I believe it's probably a person, but I do know that also, just like letters in that time, were written to be uh, shared. It wasn't just written to one person. The, the intent was that this would get passed along among the churches. And so he's, he's taken these great effort to compile a narrative. And so know this, that the genre of literature that we're getting ready to read is a, a narrative. It's not just a narrative, it's a historical narrative. It's true, and it's teaching us history of the things that he says have been accomplished among us. I would just note here, at accomplished among us, that the things that have been accomplished are the movement of God. The things that have been accomplished, God did. God moved. God worked. It's the promises that we see in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New Testament. Now, him being a historian, and he wasn't an eyewitness to the accounts, but he knew people who were eyewitnesses. He, he was getting to and going to and getting a history of what people saw that happened. So he says, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So this is a sec second generation information. He's gone back and he's, he's, he's asked stories. He's um, co uh, corroborated the, the stories. He's looked at the other gospels. Not only the other gospels, other material in the time. There would have been other stuff that was written that he also would have looked at. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, having followed all things closely, it says, having to... to be very careful, compiled these things. And he, he did so, it says, he wanted to do an orderly account for you. And it's, it's orderly. So, what that means in the, the gospel according to Luke is that it, it's, more, it's, it's more systematic than it is chronological. And so, he puts, it in, he puts this orderly account, he does it in these big sections. I'm going to show you in scripture how these big sections work out and the thrust of them in those sections. He, he doesn't necessarily put it in order. He's not worried about chronological order. He's, he's worried about the, the, the phases, the different things going on in Jesus's ministry. And then here's the reason that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. His purpose is to bring certainty. It's to, to solidify faith. It's to bring certainty to uh, Theophilus' faith and those who read it faith, right? So we start the book of Luke. This is what I want you to know. This is what I want you to be certain of. That we can be certain that Jesus is king. That's what we're going to walk away. When we get done 
after, after Christmas at, at the Advent season, and we're looking at this baby Jesus, right? I want us to be certain that this Jesus, this baby Jesus, is king, that he's God in the flesh, and to know his purpose. And we're going to look at his purpose of life as becoming the king of kings and lord of lords that was shown and proven at his resurrection at the end of this gospel. So let's dive right in. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Here's my first big idea. And it's this, the, the righteous are faithful throughout the trials of life. Verse 6, it says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and the statues of the Lord. And yet, what we know from this text is that they're walking faithfully, blamelessly. They're righteous. That what we know from this little glimpse is that they were living in a trial. Now, how do we know that? How do we know this first century Christians at the, the birth of Christ, the close of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, that they were walking in a trial of one. God hadn't spoken at this point in 400 years. They're, they're, they're living in a moment where the Jewish people desired to hear from God. They were crying out to God. They desired to hear from God. But yet God was silent. The God who had gone before them, who had fought for them, as we look at their all of their their history in the Old Testament as we see the way in which God made a way for them, that God fought for them, that God uh, pulled them out of slavery and, and uh, allowed them to cross the Red Sea, who sustained them in the wilderness, who brought them into the promised land, who, who moved and worked on their behalf, had been silent for 400 years. Here's the next clue. Times were hard. Herod was king. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. And Herod, this is known, this, this Herod was actually Herod the Great. Um, Herod the Great was, was actually a great mind. He, he, he built, he had the ability to, to, build, uh, uh, to build buildings, to build aquifers, to, to, to do canals, different things in the city and structure that God would use for his glory for years and years to come. However, Herod was a horrible king to have to live under his authority. He was a brutal, brutal man. And living under his authority, it says Rome, he was under Roman authority. So Rome had, Rome had put, put those Herods in place in the way that their government worked. And so here Herod the Great. They say at the time of Herod, like the most dangerous thing to be, the quickest way to lose your life when Herod the, Herod the Great was, was in control was to be one of his sons. He killed his own children. Uh, his sons, multiple times, I mean, he's like, this is, the, this is the threat to my throne, and he'd kill them. He even killed one of his wives. I mean, the, the, the dude was brutal. And so living conditions for Jewish people under Herod, 
under Roman rule, he was brutal. And here's the third key, one that I think maybe some people in the room, uh, some people in our society still can relate to, and it's that they were childless. They desired to have children and couldn't. Elizabeth called it her reproach, her disgrace, her shame, the very thing that she wanted with all of her heart, she, she could not have. We think that Zachariah and Elizabeth were nearly 100 years old. In their old age, this is what that she had long wanted, and Zechariah had long wanted, but yet they did not have it. And what do we see? We see this in Scripture. This isn't the first place we see somebody childless, right? There's multiple stories. The, the most prominent, Abraham and Sarah. But if you go through Scripture, you see multiple stories. They lived in trial, but they're an example to us because they were faithful in that trial. Here's one thing that we can learn, that Christians throughout all time can learn from this passage, is that we are called to walk blamelessly no matter what happens. There, there's a calling. I want you to see that we can be certain that we can trust a sovereign God, a good God who is in control. And I'll tell you, friends, this is where I think the prosperity gospel is dangerous. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel that says if you have enough faith, if you do these things, if you name it and claim it, if you just believe, then everything will go right and good. And if you are, are barren, you don't have a child, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you, you're sick and you aren't healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you've got this thing that you really want and you don't have it, it's because you don't have enough faith. But yet I look at these two and I see great faith that day after day after day he continued to serve the Lord as a priest God's gospel isn't, isn't that he's a genie in a bottle for us it's not that it's that we are broken and we need a savior and God made a the good news of the gospel is this, that while we were still sinners, rebellious in our hearts to God, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, to live this perfect and spotless life, uh, teaching and preaching and making disciples and then dying on the cross for our sins, taking our punishment for our sin. Jesus gave up his life that those who would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He didn't die so that you could have paradise on earth. He died that you could be saved and spend eternity with him. That is the good news of the gospel, my friend. It far exceeds the things of this earth and moves into eternity. And so this is what I want you to know. I want you to know for certain that whatever you're going through, whatever we are going through, it is for our good. But more importantly, it's for God's glory. Their life was a testament that this was not just for their good, but it was also going to be for God's glory and for the good of humanity. Verse 8, 
Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Here's my next big idea. We pray to a sovereign God. We pray to a sovereign God. You can see it here in these three verses. You see him walk into the temple, and on the outside you see people praying. When we say God is sovereign, we mean that God is all-knowing, that God is in control, and yet we, see, we are called to and told to, uh, commanded in Scripture to pray to God on, beh- on, on our own behalf. I'm going to show you God's sovereignty in this picture. Sovereignty in this story. At the time, there would have been been about 8,000 priests in Palestine. So there's 8,000 priests. Those 8,000 priests were broken into 24 divisions, okay? This happened under King David, uh, was shifted back around um, after the Babylonian exile. And so... The 24 divisions of priests were, broke, were broken up. Each one had about 300, over 300 priests in it. Abijah was the 8th division of the priest. Okay, so they were the 8th division. Each division served once a year, uh, uh, twice a year rather, for one week at a time. So those divisions would come and they would serve twice a year, one week at a time. There's a lot that Jewish historians can know about things that happen based off of what priests were serving at the time. They can use that. They can actually use it like a calendar and count dates to and from. And so that's why um, we we can know that Christmas uh, wasn't actually the time of the birth of Jesus. That's just when we celebrate it. So of those 24 divisions that are, have about 300 at the at the time to serve the incense there would be 56 priests who were chosen those 56 priests would come and then they would they those 50, 56 priests would cast lots to see who would go in and burn the incense so I don't know if it was rock paper scissors or gorilla man gun I'm not so sure how they like got that all down if it was rolling dice, drawing, st- uh, drawing straws, whatever it was, in God's sovereign plan, the sovereignty, we see God's sovereign hand in the casting of lots, the proverb, Proverbs shows us that it was Zechariah that was chosen. He was the one who was chosen that day at that time for a purpose that God would now speak, that God would now communicate for the first time in 400 years. He was the one who was chosen. Many priests were never chosen. In their whole life, the lot never was cast for them. It was never their turn on the die. And once you were chosen, you got to do it one time. This was a once in a lifetime privilege. And meanwhile, there are people outside praying. What are they praying? We don't know what they're praying. But I can 
I can imagine that they're praying that they would see God move, that they're praying and asking God in uh, to move in their situation. They're praying and asking for, uh, as they've come, they've made sacrifices for their sin. They're atoning for their sin. They're praying for an ultimate atonement. I can imagine that they're praying and asking God that the Messiah would come. And then inside the temple, can you imagine what Zechariah must have been feeling in the moment? The very things that he had been taught to do in a, in a family of priesthood, the things that he had been taught about the temple, he'd never seen the things that he was about to see as he walked in the door. Oh, there's the way to the Holy of Holies. There's the candlestick. There's the cherubim. There's, uh, the, there's the, the curtains, the other side of the curtains that I've never seen before. There's the altar. And so you see this sovereign God calling his choice servant, his faithful servant, Zachary, into the temple to light the incense. And his timing and his planning knows what's about to happen. And yet there are people outside praying, petitioning God to move. And in fact, he's getting ready to move. So we have to ask the question, why do we pray to a sovereign God? Because he hears our prayer. This is what R.C. Sproul said. Prayer, like everything else in the Christian life, is for God's glory and for our benefit in that order. Everything that God does, everything that God allows and ordains is the supreme sense for His glory. It's also true that while God seeks His own glory supremely, man benefits when God is glorified. We pray to glorify God, but we also pray in order to receive the benefits of prayer from his hand. Prayer is for our benefit even in light of the fact that God knows the end from the beginning. It's our privilege to bring the whole of our finite existence into the glory of his infinite presence. So God, by his sovereign plan, and at the cries of his people, was about to move. He's beginning to fill, to fulfill promises that were promised years and years and years before. And he's about to bring a new day to his people. Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Here's the next big idea that I, I want you to see, is that fear is often the response to the miraculous power of God. When we look at the, the, the stories that are told around the birth of Jesus, there's actually multiple times where fear is said. Fear. Every time an angel shows up, guess what? They're not, they're not just like, oh, well, great to see you here today. It's that of fear. It's they're, they're awestruck. They realize that they're standing in the presence of a divine, angelic being. Fear. We, we, uh, we, we live in a world where we want the absence of fear but yet so often 
when God moves, when we see God move, what, what, what is our response but fear? See in the Bible. I see it in my own personal life. When the Lord has really stirred me and stirred my, uh, my affections or called me to something, often the very thing that he's calling me to is scary to me. There's, there's something for me to be fearful. As I count the cost of, of following Christ, fear is part of the, fact, of the factor of faith. And I want you to understand it's good. I mean, what do we know? What does is, what is Proverbs chapter 1 teach us? That the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. The Bible over and over says, fear God. We should fear the Lord. This is a healthy thing. We should look at God and his power, and we should be awestruck. We should be fearful because we are not holy, yet we have a holy and righteous God. Fear is part of our faith journey, and we overcome our fear by the comfort of the Lord, by the trusting of the Lord, by God moving, knowing that we can trust in him, that, that, that we can be certain it's the certainty of God's promises coming to fruition in our lives that removes the fear from us. Fear is a stage of our faith, and it is important. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of their children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the, the, the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So here's the next thing I want you to see is that John's ministry would be one of faith and repentance. This would be John's ministry. If we want to sit right here in the text, and we want to start reading forward, this is what, what, what we're going to know. That this very thing that the angel was telling Zechariah would come true. Because when, when John would begin to prepare his way, prepare the way of Jesus, he was the forerunner of Jesus, he went before Jesus' ministry proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. What was his message? Repent and believe. You know what repentance means? Repentance means to turn from. Like in biblically speaking, when we talk about repentance, it means that we are headed this direction with our eyes on false idols, false gods, whatever the thing is that we're worshiping, and we turn from it, we literally turn from it and turn our hearts to Christ, and we go after Christ. And so if we're going to look forward, we're going to look and see this very thing said by the angel Gabriel would come true. But check this out. If we turn back in our Bibles, we go to the book of Malachi, the, the very last things that were said in the Old Testament. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Now, Elijah the prophet had already come, right? Elijah the prophet had already come. So, 
this is, this is pointing forward to who is going to be this new Elijah. John the Baptist was going to be this new Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And listen to what he says. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree in utter destruction. Listen, the very first thing said, the very first way in which God spoke in the New Testament was the very last thing he said in the Old Testament. How incredible is that, that John's ministry would be one of faith and repentance. That John's ministry would, would be to, to show people to re repent and to look for the king is coming, for Jesus is coming. Look, stop looking at the world and turn your eyes to Jesus. Behold, here comes the one. We're going to see this, and we're going to see this, that this is John's ministry, is to turn people to faith and repentance. But here's, here's the, like, there's irony here. Look at the next thing that's coming. Here's my next thing. I'm just going to go ahead and give you the big idea before we read, read that text. Even the faithful can fail to have faith. Verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and then bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so, Zechariah's response was one of is a lack of faith. It was... How shall I know this? How, how can I believe this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Well, one, Zechariah, how about the, the Old Testament in which you know, like the back of your hand? How many times did God work the miraculous in a family who was childless? Your very people the very, were, were, were birthed from Abraham and from Sarah. From Sarah's child, who, who was old and advanced in years. And by faith, Hebrews 11 says, that Sarah believed that God could do it, and he did it. More than that, I'm Gabriel. I'm an angel standing before you. You know the Bible, right, Zechariah? Remember in Daniel, when thousands of years ago, when Daniel like had that encounter? Yeah. That was me. I was there. That was me. I stand in the presence of God. This is what I do. You get, you've got to come in here once to light this incense. I stand in the presence of God, and he sent me here to tell you this good news. Now, I think the next thing that happened wasn't, a, wasn't punishment. I don't think he, we, he, he's going to lose here his voice and be silent and unable to speak. I don't think it was punishment. I think it was God's grace. I think it was his unmerited favor so that he could not sow seeds of doubt in his wife. And so, this is what I would tell us. We look at Zechariah, we know he's faithful. We know he's, he, he, he persevered in times of, of trial. 
And I think this is good news to us, is that even those of you who are faithful, there are people in the room who've walked with Christ a long time, that you've been faithful, that you've got on your knees and you've prayed and you've begged God and you've seen God move, that you've shown up in the mundane, in the ordinary, and you've seen God move. You've, you've shown up and you've seen God move and do the extraordinary things that you didn't think he would be able to, to do, and yet God did them. And you would look here, stand here today, and we would look at you and say, You're, that, that, that person's faith is strong, but yet in your heart you know there are times where you're faithless. There are times when you struggle with faith, that you struggle with doubt. Know that God can meet you in that doubt. Just as he silenced Zachariah's mouth, so he can silence the doubt in our hearts. And he can turn our hearts to him. And so let me encourage the faithful who sometimes fail to have faith to know, to be certain of this good news. It's good news of the gospel. Verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and, re and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And from this beautiful story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the visit of the angel in the temple in this God-planned, God-ordained moment, John the Baptist is conceived. The very thing that should not be able to do, the Lord does in the, her womb. He does it with both of them. But he's not just doing it for them. It's not just that they can have a child. It's so that they can, that Elijah, this new Elijah, John the Baptist, the forerunner, can come. This is God answering his promises, promises he made that we see in the Old Testament. We can see them in the book of Isaiah. We can see it here in Malachi. We have a God who keeps his promises. So the next big idea, we must have faith that the promises of God are true. It's why Luke is writing this to Theophilus. And right off the bat, here we see a story that's showing how God's promises come true. They're yes and amen in Jesus. I want you to think about it. Uh, about if, if you know the, kind of the birth narrative, you know that Mary's also gonna 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 be told by an angel that she's gonna be with child, and that child's gonna be of sovereign, got divine origin. Like we're gonna we're gonna get that, and so you see the angels appear in the uh, birth uh, announcements. But I want you to fast forward to the end of the book of Luke, to the end of the gospel. And what is yet the good news that those angels are going to say? Two angels standing by the tomb, and the Marys walk up to, to go and to put 
incense on the, Jesus' dead body. And what is it that the angels say to them? But he is not here. He is risen. The point of the book of Luke is so that we may know from the very beginning of the story, the very end of the story, that God is in it, that God is keeping his promises, that he's moving, and we can have certainty in our faith. In that moment when Zechariah says, how can I know these things are true? How can I know this is sure? How can I know this is going to happen? He didn't want to walk by faith. He wanted to walk by sight. He, he didn't want to hear uh, a promise. He wanted proof. That's not what we're called to. We're called to live by faith, not by sight. We're, we're called to, to live with a promise and trust in those promises. So we as a people, we go to God's word. We go to God in prayer. We seek out to have our faith increased in the promises of God. And so remember the big truth. So that we can be certain that Jesus is king. Today, as, as, as we start the book of Luke... Maybe you're, on a, maybe you're on some sort of faith journey. And maybe you're like, you know what, I don't know if I believe this. I hear you up there talking, and man, you're, you're passionate. But obviously, I think you believe it, but I don't really believe it. I just think you're crazy. Here's my challenge to you. To hang around. To open up God's Word and read it with us every week. To let's, let's see what God does, and let's see what happens with your faith. I think maybe in the Lord's sovereign hand, the Lord's sovereign plan, just in the way that he had Zechariah in the temple at that moment, maybe he has you here today in this room at this moment for a reason. And so there's my challenge. Show up, hear it, let's see what God is doing, and maybe one day you'll be certain that Jesus is king. The next group of people in the room, maybe you're faithful, you're steadfast, you've been here, but you have moments of doubt. So did Zechariah. Keep showing up and you're going to see that God is faithful and you can be certain that Jesus is king. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your word. Lord, I believe it's true and may it be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. May we hide our hearts in your word. Lord, move and work in us today. Stir in our hearts. Increase our faith. May we believe this Christmas season. May it not just be about a, a holiday, a cultural holiday in which we give presents and get the things that we want, but may it be about you, Jesus, that it's the good news that is born to us this day, a Savior. That the Savior has come. Lord, this is the angel's announce the coming may we be your people who proclaim that you've come just as advent teaches us to to in 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 faith look at the coming of the savior may we live our lives in anticipation pro proclaiming the returning of the king of kings and lord of lords lord move and work in our hearts today in jesus name 
Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand and sing, and we're going to sing not kind of your typical song of response, but one that we've sung, we sing often, one that is for the church at Christmas.